If your work had a message, what would you like for that message to say? Trauma is like blowing air in a balloon. And if you don't let the air out of the balloon, the balloon eventually pops. Violence is related to trauma. And that violence affects us all. The work that that we're doing here at Center for Hope is providing an opportunity to let some of the air out of the balloon. Hey there, thanks for checking out The Best Kind today. This is a series where we learn from Baltimore's helpers and their journeys in kindness. So we look for lessons that they've learned in their lives so far that maybe we can all use to make our lives better together. I'm Josh Morgan, and in this episode, I'll be talking with Freedom Jones, or they go by Free for short. Free is the director of community violence intervention programs at the Center for Hope, which is a part of the LifeBridge Health System here in the city. The center offers programs and services that break the cycles of violence in the Baltimore area, and they help residents deal with the impacts of these cycles, especially when it comes to processing trauma. Free directs several of these programs, and she supports teams who literally go out into the streets and look for people and meet them where they are uh, so that they can provide them the supports they need to recover from trauma. I'll talk with Free about their background and why they enjoy this work in a few minutes. The Best Kind is on YouTube if you'd like to watch the video version of the show, or you can listen to the audio version wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop twice a month now, so check back every 1st and 15th for a new episode. You can subscribe for new episodes at bestkindpod.com and sign up for the email newsletter. I'm also going to give in to social media. I'm going to put my personal disgust for using social media aside and... Uh, focus on uh, you know what's best for the helpers here in Baltimore if I'm trying to get the word out about the work they're doing uh, you know if I'm just trying to encourage more people to pay attention to these helpers that are all around us then I need to be on social media so having said that I am going to start uh posting on Twitter and Instagram at bestkindpod if you'd like to follow along um I'll start trying to put out some fun things over the next few weeks. So if you'd like, uh, pause this episode right now and go follow the show at best kind pod on Twitter or Instagram. Once you're done doing that, uh, put this episode on in the background of whatever you're up to. And I hope you enjoy the show. Free Jones and her coworkers at the center for hope are one of several groups here in the Baltimore area that are on the front lines of the city's struggle against violence. And that collective violence that's taken place in the city over decades is it represents more than just a massive loss of life. And it certainly represents more than a political talking point that's used across the country. It represents countless residents who've been affected for years and years. Uh, They've been harmed mentally. They've been harmed spiritually and, you know, sometimes physically over and over again, whether that's, you know, in the fact that they've lost neighbors at times or even their loved ones to violent crimes, or maybe they've even been the victims of violent crimes themselves. This type of trauma that's created through violent uh, behavior It causes all sorts of issues and not only for the victims of those crimes, but also their communities and all of us in the Baltimore area. And the fact that we all share the same resources, the same culture, and, you know, we share the same city. So 
ultimately when something happens negatively to one of us, it, it should affect all of us. But fortunately, there's been more attention lately on the effects of Baltimore's collective trauma and not just on how violence has affected us as Baltimoreans in recent years, but on how this trauma has been passed down from generation to generation. One positive step uh, that I've noticed in the last few years was the passage of the Elijah Cummings Healing City Act of 2020, which it, it called for leaders of our city government to be trained in trauma-informed care. And trauma-informed care refers to, uh, specifically in this context, it refers to how leaders of of these systems in our city, uh, they're educated on how their systems may be reinforcing trauma that people have experienced or even recreating the trauma so that it's happening again and again for these people. Uh, and the idea behind these trainings is that, you know, leaders and then, you know, subsequently their employees, uh, the people that work for them in these systems would know that, you know, what role that their positions play in helping people heal from trauma they may have experienced in the city over the years. It, there's also several groups here, like the Center for Hope, uh, that are now focused on helping residents identify and relieve all types of trauma. Uh, you know, some other things off the top of my head are the, the University of Baltimore. They now offer a trauma-informed care certificate that I believe is 12 credits uh, through their graduate school. And, you know, even in librarians, I, I was reading, I, I believe, August 2021, there was a series of trainings for librarians in the Enoch Pratt library system where librarians were even being trained on trauma-informed care here in the city. So it gives me hope to know that people like these and and people like Free uh, get out of bed every day here because they want to heal Baltimore's collective trauma. Free's presence in Baltimore in particular touches me because, you know, they they direct several anti-violence programs, which that's great. But what touches me is that they have a heart for helping others. And I, I really think that came through in our conversation. They know firsthand how painful it is to deal with trauma uh, that's unresolved and how having unresolved trauma can rob us of our humanity. Uh, you know, instead of retreating when free sees that kind of pain in others, um, they're able to recognize that it's occurring just by process of, of their experience. And, you know, for a lot of us who, who might want to kind of distance ourselves when we see People in pain, you know, like just agonizing suffering co that comes on, like, you know, it may manifest as, you know, like mental distress or homelessness or, you know, all sorts of social problems that are present in Baltimore City and had been for several years. Free goes towards those people. She goes towards them where they are and tries to help not only those people as individuals, but also you know, just our communities and our city as a whole, uh, Free tries to help us heal from a lot of those wounds uh, through the work she does every day. And I think their passion for that type of work comes through in our conversation. Free's a, a busy person, I've realized, as you can imagine, uh, running several different anti-violence programs. There's a lot of work to be done. So I'm grateful that they made time to talk with me. I really am. They're also a welder and a metal sculpture artist, which I I I had a sense of before we talked, but we didn't, we didn't get a chance to go into that, but I'll share where you can follow uh, free and their work uh, after this conversation. So stay tuned for that. Here's freedom Jones. 
I'd mentioned before about um, I had changed my own uh, legal name in the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it made me curious, you know, what what's the story behind your name? Uh, I, I'm assuming you were born as Lisa, but yes. now you, you're Lisa, deciding uh, to change your name Lisa. to Freedom. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, that's a good question. You know, I, I contemplated for many, many years around changing my name. Um, Lisa, you know, I didn't even realize, um, I realized a little later, you know, how trauma affects me and how it affects other folks. And I, I, I had been exposed to a lot of trauma, um, when my name was called for lots of reasons. And, you know, I had wanted to change it, but didn't really understand why I really did not like my name. And I, I was talking to a friend a few years ago and I realized that it, there is a lot of trauma connected to for me, hearing my name, Lisa Jones, because it was used in some crazy situations that I was, I was constantly called. And I, I, I remember telling my siblings a long time ago, I wanted to, you know, change my name and, you know, would play around with it. But this year, you know, a dear friend, you know, um, was kind of like a little bit of a guide with me around changing my name. So I did some meditation and a little searching uh, around what would I feel comfortable with. And so the freedom came to me um, or so free or freedom. And, and I'm trying to live my life freely. And I think I encourage others to, to be free in their mind. And so for me um, in my role at LifeRidge, I see, you know, I'm, I've always been an activist, um, but I see myself um, in a position now where I can um, really share some of my activism and I'm taking a lot more responsibility with my my um, actual intent with my activism. And so my name specifically is something that I'm choosing to remind people about freedom and uh, around their own choice of freedom. And for me, it's a reminder I don't want to live in fear. I don't want, I want to live freely. And for me, that's somewhat of a mental thing as opposed to all the constraints that we have to deal with in the world, but I don't want to imprison myself. So it's a reminder. So I love the term freedom. I love hearing it as a reminder for myself. That's awesome. And I can relate because with my name change, you know, my story sounds similar to yours. Um, You know, it came from an abusive household and, uh, and I have two other siblings, a younger brother and younger sister, and we all changed our names for the same reasons. Um, wow. you know, cause we felt you know, call it, being called by the names that we were born with, you know, we we're associating, like always reminded of things that happened in the past. So, yes. so I, I can totally relate to, to your That's own beautiful. decision and I support it. Thank you. And I, and yours too. I, you know, I love the question. So, you know, and it's, you know, since I did it, you know, I really, I, I did it before I le- it's legal. I'm going to do that this year. And so um, at, at Center for Hope, you know, I hear it now. They, they're calling me freedom. And, you know, I, I have it in my signature along with Lisa because it's not legal yet. But they've been very supportive. And so it's such an interesting process. So, you know, I, and thank you for sharing your process. Sure. That's awesome. So uh, where are you from originally? I am originally from New York, Long Island. I was born in the last little town on the island, Greenport. Um, so Greenport. I have a long history at Greenport, Long Island. My, my family's from there, generations from, from there. Um, and my father was in the Air Force, so we did a little traveling. Yeah. And so I, but predominantly most of my life, I've, I've been in New York. Okay. Uh, I, I guess this kind of goes back to what we were just discussing with, you know, your upbringing, but how, how was life growing up for you? What was your childhood like? Wow. My childhood is really interesting. You know, my grandparents, my mom single, my mom and my dad divorced. Um, it was a, it was a rough, 
experience with my father and um, my grandparents were like the stable foundation for me, you know, so um, they were a very proud um, black family from from Long Island. Um, and they they didn't they guarded us, you know, my siblings and I from a lot of stuff that they experienced. Um, for the most part, I didn't know they struggled for the most part. I, other than my mom and my dad and their struggles, I didn't know I didn't experience the, the struggle that they endured for us. So for the most part, I was able to play and have fun and not think about life and and some of the hardships um, until later on when I really could digest some of my experiences. But but my childhood was was pretty cool. You know, the neighborhood oh, good. Were, were diverse and and, you know, until a little later in life. All right. Um, and then, you know, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but. Uh, you know, eventually you went through school. Uh, how were you as a student? Oh my goodness. I am dyslexic. Um, I did not realize I was dyslexic until high school. I had a really great teacher who, who sensed something was a little off, you know, so I was a fairly good student except for, you know, my ability to read. And as a result, I covered it up and, and didn't share a lot of that that anxiety I had around reading. Um, when I got to college, I really didn't buy books after the first year because I had to memorize everything. Mm-hmm. And so my high school teacher helped me understand that I had an issue, but I didn't really have solutions around my issue. Um, I was a great student um, because I had no choice. You know, I was on a basketball scholarship. I, I played ball in high school and my parents, my mom was a single mom. So I didn't want her to have to pay for college. And so I busted my butt playing basketball and I was able to get a scholarship to, to, I, I mean, I had, I was blessed, you know, I worked really hard. I had some, yeah, really good for you. Mentors, you know, so I was a, I was a decent student. Um, and with my dyslexia, it, it was a little bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually you went to college. What did you have a major in mind when you went to college or um, I did, did not, you, you did not. Okay. I did not, you know, I, I knew I wanted to work around, um, helping folks in some form or fashion. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I just knew I wanted to play basketball. You know, I was one of those young people where basketball, I, I slept with my ball. I ate with my basketball. It was my life. Um, until my sophomore year, um, when I really connected with someone who helped me think about folks who had disabilities. And so that opened up a whole, whole, um, way in which I wanted to, you know, move in a direction around working with people. Hmm. I know you got your bachelor's in education. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the direction you settled on while you were in college as far as helping people? No, when I, I, you know, you know, I, I, when I got out of college, I worked for the department of justice, my first job, and I did some work in a federal prison and I did it for two years and I hated it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, what what was it that you didn't like about it? Oh my goodness. I learned a lot about the justice, injustice. I worked um, in New York and it was my first experience experiencing what I thought was the total opposite of what I thought law enforcement, what I thought helping folks look like. Mm. You know, I I grew up grew up thinking that, you know, law enforcement was great. It was the thing that was the just thing. Like I said, my my family sheltered me, you know, from a lot of a lot of a lot of situations. And so I, I took the job thinking that um I was helping people. Um and I learned that it was not a a, a system that was just, you know, and so I did it for a couple of years and then I quit. 
I couldn't take it because I did not like what I was doing. And, and I got a job. I took a, a major pay cut. I took a job. Uh, Mayor uh, Dinkins had a program called the Beacon Program in New York. And I, and I took a job as a coordinator for Good Shepherd Services of a program in a school that kept the school open, you know, almost seven days a week, almost around the clock that provided services, educational, recreational, social service, all these services in a school. Um, it was like a community center. And the first, the first almost month of my employment, the principal was shot and killed chasing a child out of the street. And I started out as a coordinator and I became the director of this program within a really, really short period of time. Wow. And it was my first real experience around working in community for community and really providing a lot of opportunities and really, you know, connecting with folks out of love. And so that's the trajectory that really started me working in communities that are marginalized and full of trauma um, and really understanding my passion for doing the work. Mm -hmm. So did, did you have any projects that you worked on before you assumed that role that were more community minded? Or that no, was sort of your not. first foray into it. They took a chance with me because I did not have experience. Most of my experience was, like I said, working in for the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. Total opposite. So they, they took a chance and gave me the coordinator position. And because of my skill set and because of my love for people. And, be, and I, I think we're, I think it is innately my gift to serve and work and develop program for um, folks and to be the conduit to help get folks exposed to things that they like to be exposed to. So I had no experience, but I went to school in on the job. I understand. Yep. Mm -hmm. You said something that that's intriguing to me. Um, Where do you think your love or affinity for people in general comes from? Is that from your background or, I mean, can you kind of generalize where all those influences might come from? I think my grandmom, was the epitome of what I call love. You know, she was able to love people through anything and everything that she experienced. You know, what's your she, grandma's name? Her Lily Mae Johnson. We called her Nana. And and Nana was what people thought of as a beacon of love. She would speak to people. She would she would smile. I I actually never heard her raise her voice. She was nothing but pure love. Oh. And and she always extended herself to everyone. And, I, you know, I think it's in my genes. I think, you know, my mom used to tell me when I was a kid, I used to, you know, we were, we, we grew up um, in a, with a practicing the Baptist, Baptist tradition. And my mom would say I, at four years old, I would wait for the elders at the, on the church steps and try to hold their hands and just help them down the stairs. And I remember that. Oh. And I didn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's innately a part of my makeup to live and love everyone. When I when I worked in the federal system, I, I met some serious I met some serious characters and some serious people who, who did some really bad things. And I didn't. And, and we would have heart to heart conversations. You know, I'd have heart to heart conversations maybe with John Gotti or heart to heart conversations with some serious hitmen. Do you yeah, understand? Right. And they would literally share. And for some reason, I, it wasn't about judging for me. It was about just really understanding and seeing the light that they even in the dark behavior that they, they chose to kind of move. I could see the love for some reason. I actually so I definitely think. And I talk with my hands, forgive me. I, that 
comes from my grandmother, Nana. You know, it is innately the gift that she gave me. It is innately the gift that transcends how I move in the world. I, I, I am, I, I just think it's a blessing to be able to love everyone. Yeah. That's awesome. Something I've learned from talking with people over the years is, you know, one of the, the best ways you can extend love to someone is just listening and just being present. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you, I don't know. Something's very touching to me about hearing that you were able to talk with some of these kind of hardened, hardened people and that they were able to open up to you. Yeah. I heard some really horrific things and, you know, we were able to, I I, I genuinely love people. You know, I, I genuinely love people. I am not the judge or the jury. You know, I I think that um, we are all here. We're all connected. And, you know, I'm just grateful that I have that gift to be able to love, to love, you know. (laughs) It has helped me in the work now. It has helped me, you know. It has helped me. I can see that for sure. But I, I know, at, you know, at some point you transitioned into uh, you were a director for an organization that was um, it was community minded. But you also did some work like in disaster relief, disaster recovery. Yeah, how, how did I, you get into that role? Um, wow. You know, I I did a lot of work for, you know, the, I, I did some work for the, you know, Beacon. You know, I I. Because I was young, I, I did not learn self-care, you know, and I was in that community, you know, a lot. And there was a lot of violence. And, you know, I, I didn't have the tools to be able to digest and understand that I was taking in trauma myself. Mm-hmm. So I got I got sick. So so I I literally took a step back from doing community work, went to school to learn to weld and do some. You know, I got all my license licenses to weld. Wow. So I do a lot of metal. I, I'm an artist also. I do a lot of welding and metal sculpture. I try to do shows that help nonprofit organizations. And after that, I, I decided to go back into the nonprofit sector. So I started to regain exposure to lots of different communities, youth, you know, folks who had been from, you know, different, different countries, you know. And so I ended up um, doing a, a safe streets program in New York. I was a director, a manager, a director manager of the first safe streets program that was started in Crown Heights. It was called SO, Save Our Streets um, Crown Heights. And I did that. And, and at, at that point, I still didn't understand self-care. I didn't. So I took on all this trauma again and then really hurt myself. Yeah. And so I took another bit of time off. I, I had to take some time off because, like I said, I hurt myself. And so my first opportunity back full time, I started as a consultant with Brooklyn Community Services. And in, in doing that, um, Hurricane Sandy had, had hit <laughs> and I had no real experience with with the disaster recovery work. And so they hired me as a consultant. I literally um, hit the ground running. I became a director in a short period of time and um, ran the recovery effort for the whole um, for Coney Island and that area. And it was a catalyst for several programs that happened in Coney Island. So we had some. So because of the disaster and and I think that my, my, my way of doing work is that. The, the disaster was an opportunity for some change. So, so that any, any, anything is an opportunity for change, sure. but Sandy was, was the 
catalyst for a lot of um, um, community growth, community opportunity, because, you know, money was being poured in the, in the area. So I, I took on that role and, and did that for probably about five or six years, you know, so there was youth programs, you know, um, recovery programs, all kinds of programs that kind of sprung from, from the recovery effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The reason I ask is, uh, so I have a background in sociology and when I was in grad school, I studied with an environmental sociologist, specifically about disasters. I wrote my master's thesis on an oil spill. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, the reason I bring that up is, you know, I can see, you know, given your career working to help uh, youth, uh, you know, specifically in violence and, and traumatic behaviors. I mean, there's nothing more traumatic than a disaster for a community. Yeah. So I can see a lot of similarities that, you know, maybe you could draw from that mm-hmm. maybe Absolutely. you're kind of using throughout your your career after you yeah. went through the disaster recovery efforts. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I said, disasters are opportunities. Yeah. You know, we, we're, we're going to have them. You know, we're going to have trauma and violence and and it's unfortunate, but, you know, those can be opportunities for some serious growth and opportunity. And so, you know, the recovery effort led to some serious change in Coney Island from from a community perspective and an individual perspective. And so we, 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 my team, I, I was very, very proud of the family that that developed. Um, in Coney Island, because we we literally came from a place of love and we came with, with an understanding that this is an opportunity. So we, we didn't want to get stuck in the dark, the the, the tragedy. We, we used it as a means to grow. And in doing that, we we worked with individuals and they understood that because we worked in a process around that understanding. That's awesome. Because, you know, with disasters and recovering from them, building resilience after a disaster hits, it, you know, it, it, in my research, you know, in the past, I, I often saw where groups would get divided over like what should happen next or, yeah. you know, having fights and conflicts over funding. And, mm-hmm. but, you know, the, the approach you described sounds like a much more restorative healing type yeah. of approach. So I, I just appreciate that. Yeah. And a cooperative. One of the things that we learned as a result of, of Sandy was because the resources were so destroyed, we all, all we had to work cooperatively. Mm-hmm. And so there actually there was the, there was a foundation that did a study around how the work was done. So, so we had to have all kinds of services in a hub, you know, and we had to share resources. We had to share electricity. We had to share stuff. Wow. And, and that disaster helped everyone understand how to work more cooperatively and collaboratively. So, so that was key. And, and we, and, and, and so there's been, you know, I wish I had, could quote some, some of the evaluators, but that was some real, you know, um, real strategic um, outcomes that came out of that process. So collaborative work is, and par- real partnership is something that I think is real. It's, it, it doesn't happen automatically but it is something that is critical to, to change. You mentioned a little bit ago uh, about you became more cognizant of your self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you, when you took on this, this new role, how, mm-hmm. how did you change your self-care habits? Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, when I moved to Baltimore, um, 
I was given an opportunity to direct another Safe Streets program. Um, I I became the director of the Woodbourne McKay Safe Streets site here in Baltimore. And before I did it, I went away and I did a, a Vipassana meditation. And that's a 10-day silent retreat where you go in, you, 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 you process, you meditate, and you're silent for 10 days. I knew I was, I was hoping to get the opportunity, but I wasn't sure if that I would get it. You know, I, I kind of felt I would. Yeah, because I I, so, so, but when I did that meditation, I, I had to ask myself, was I truly ready to do it? You know, I was new to Baltimore. And I did. I knew that I had developed a lot more self-care practices, um, but I, and so I thought I had that habit, you know, the exercise, eating healthy, all all that stuff that helps the body, the mind, and the spirit stay healthy. Yep. Therapy, you know, things that I I, I had been practicing those, and I got I took this job, I, I meditated on it, and I got the opportunity. I started the job, and I I went. I like I said. I did not know Baltimore. I did not know what the streets were like here. I did not what, know. What brought you to Baltimore? My, my partner oh, okay. know, is like, yeah, she, she um, lived here and was a five-year commuting process. And I was like, I was ready. After the Hurricane Sandy programs has, were, were, were at a place where there was sustainability, everything was good. I felt, okay, we had been you know, commuting. I've been commuting for five years. It was time. Yeah. And so, you know, I had one position that fell through and then, you know, I did a little welding, teaching some welding at, at Open Works and got an opportunity to direct the Safe Streets program. When I took that role, I had no clue. Um, it was college for me. I, I learned, you know, I, I believe that it was a gift from the universe because I am now have a better understanding of the work that I'm doing now for the Center for Hope as a result of the two year of no joke. I can't even describe to you what I experienced yeah. as the director of Safe Streets. So I went I can to imagine, school. You know, being in in the streets, like having that direct experience with people that you're serving. I, I could see that being really eye opening. Direct experience. Um it was, and I've, I've done this work in many places, but I've never experienced anything like I have here in Baltimore. Some some pros and cons, and we can we can talk about that. But I went to school, and so the practices that I I thought I had developed, I had no choice in order for me to to be my full self, in order for me to really bring my best self. I had no choice but to really go in around my self care because. And, and it was a test for me because I had no idea that I was going to experience some of the things that I experienced in that role. It it was the universe taking me to grad school <laughs> in the streets. And yeah. so as a result of that, I developed some serious um, practices around my own um, trauma, around my own um, um, health. Um, so it it helped me really solidify the need to have those strong skills. Yeah. I could see having, you know, coming to Baltimore and getting that direct experience where, you know, the circumstances for your clients can be so extreme. I I could Mm -hmm. see that requiring a lot of emotional labor that you, you probably had some sort Mm -hmm. of exposure to before, but not quite to that extent. No idea. You know, I, I, I have worked around 
despair, darkness, um, tragedy and trauma most of my life. You know, um, some really horrific, horrific circumstances. Like I said, I had no clue what I was going to experience here. And um, and so, you know, it re- I, I can. I can now help the staff that I am supervising, you know, mitigate some of the trauma that they take on in this work, because I, I now know the importance of having those practices. And, and for me, in the role that I am, I can guide um, staff around their own self-care so that they can be their best selves to serve others where they're, where they're taking on secondary trauma. Yeah. Oh, secondary trauma. <laughs> secondary trauma. I, that term just stuck with me. I, I haven't heard that before. Yeah. So it's that trauma that you don't know you're taking in. You know, yeah. it's it's that trauma, for example, you know, one of the things that was really, really shocking, which is a part of the Safe Streets, you know, awareness component that I I experienced was that seeing firsthand how communities where there's lots of violence are not are are the violence is such a normalized thing. Yeah. You know, I could see firsthand young children stepping over bodies and going on and not understanding that they're taking on secondary trauma because of what they see. Mm-hmm. Not understanding that their friend was, you know, killed and they're now taking on some of that trauma. You know, so it it was it was what I call experiential learning for me. To and I and I I I, it, it, it's not something that I want people to to have to endure, but it, it was a blessing for me to have those experiences so that I can share um, some of that with, with, with the way I which I support others in this work. Yeah. I mean, it, it's unfortunate that you have to witness things like that, but it is informative. I, I It seems like it would be important that you understand firsthand what, because, yeah. you know, I, I heard in um I took a conflict resolution uh, training last year mm-hmm. and something um, this was uh, through Baltimore ceasefire. And yeah, with, with Erica. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, and w- one of the things that, that they talked about that stuck out with me is that violence is a language. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I've I never heard thing. that before, but yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Like yeah. I, I can see if, you know, people, not only if they have no way to communicate their stress and what they're going through, they may resort to violence, but also when they take in what other people are communicating, then it just seems like you said, it seems like violence is normal. Yeah. You know, I definitely believe in the public health approach to violence. You know, it is definitely something that I consider a disease and I definitely see that a disease, the disease can spread and that spreads not only with language, body language, it spreads if we don't address it, just like any other disease would. Um, And so it it definitely helps put some context around, you know, how you can do violence intervention work. Mm -hmm. What specifically interested you about um, the Center for Hope at LifeBridge? Well, you know, that role is just, I think it's perfect for me. You know, in all my years, I've seen, programs. You know, the Beacon was a program where it had lots of programs in a school, but those were were programs that were not geared specifically around trauma and dealing with trauma and solutions for trauma. Excuse me. But but the Center for Hope is like one of the first of its kind. When I heard about the concept, I I was I, I lost my mind because 
It is a concept where you have all of these supportive services that address trauma. So you have services that address child abuse, sex traffic, you know, all these 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 trauma situations. And then you have all these services in a building connected to a hospital where you can provide services to address those trauma. And, and to be able to do that, because trauma is connected to so many different things. You know, we don't experience trauma one way, yep. but it manifests in several types of ways. Yep. So to have this kind of facility where you can, you can connect with a person from, from all kinds of different potential traumas that affect an individual is like, phew, to me, it's like, what? And so, um, you know, the, the Center for Hope, you know, is really kind of a place where that can happen, you know, and we're, we're looking at the evidence, you know, it's, it's work that is driven by, by by data. It's work that is driven by love. It's work that is driven by, I mean, just so much. And, and I think, you know, just for me, in terms of the programs that are under what I consider my portfolio for, for support are two safe streets components. But, okay, we have... PAVE, which is a program that deals with um, youth and and communities that have been victims of gunshot um, violence and severe trauma. So we provide case management through those kinds of, of, of situations and to hospitals. So we have Sinai Hospital and Grace Hospital, where there are hospital responder programs in the hospital that not only deal with community violence, they, they deal with, um, you know, elder abuse, sex trafficking, domestic violence, all of the traumas that, you know, come through the ER, we have the opportunity to really provide services and supports. And so it's like that it's like um, an opportunity to really help someone from 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 a holistic, you know, possibility. And because LifeBridge is such a huge entity, they have a vast array of resources. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have a vast array of supports. And, and so you can actually, you know, help someone in their trajectory to change with the, op- with the resources to make that happen. So it's like it's like a dream. It's super impressive. I'm excited for the building to open. Uh, yeah, we're, we're that, excited. The Ribbon County. You have to come. You know, we'll have to get you. We're going to do some, you know, stuff with the community and we're going to do this whole you know, week of activity. Um, we're, we're going to launch, do a prayer breakfast to try and bring in clergy to have them engage around how they can support, you know, violence as, as a collective. It's, it's being done there. You know, there are all these pockets of amazing services, you know, here in Baltimore, because there's a lot of resource. I'm, I'm blown. I, I love. But 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 because of the building, we have an opportunity to bring folks together, you know, to share in the building, the spaces, you know, we can bring folks together. And, and I so so that's exciting. You know, we're, well, I'm, I'm just excited for, for the, the opening. You know, yeah, I, I hadn't considered that that having a physical location will help you know, yeah, centralize some of this stuff, yeah, you know, and it's a great space, it's, it's got some room to be, to be able to do some larger groups, you know, we can do some conferences, do some trainings, the community can well. use the space, yeah, you know, I, ideally, it'd be great to do a conference for for me for violence intervention programs just to share what they do. Yeah just to be able to talk about what they do. So people, so we all know what's out there, you know, because you're you're in the work, everybody's doing this work and everybody's engaged with their part of the work. But, but we, for me coming together and kind of really understanding 
how to refer someone, how to connect someone is like an opportunity that for me is is real now that we have a space. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, Mayor Scott's uh, program. One of the first things he implemented, or at least that I noticed he implemented when he, he took over um, last year was uh, the, the trauma informed care training for all city employees. Yes, it makes me yes. think, you know, that he, that's a foundation that, you know, people in the city can start to build on, including the Center for Hope. And, yes. you know, maybe it doesn't have to be just for city employees, but, it, you know, there's all sorts yes. of possibilities. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I I'm you know, one of the things that I truly believe is that like like blood pressure, you know, it's like a dead, silent killer. Trauma is a silent killer. You know, I've seen here how it's a I've seen firsthand how someone didn't even know that they were experiencing all this trauma. And the I see them as like this balloon and the air kept going in, going in, going in. Eventually that balloon popped. I've seen it over and over and over and over again. And that popping looks like a shooting. It looks like a stabbing. It looks like all this behavior that you know what? I don't think most people want to do. It looks like that secondary trauma, you know, that trauma that you've endured because of racism, because of generation, because of this, that, and the other thing. And you didn't let, or you didn't have the opportunity to engage in letting some of that air out and you popped. And so trauma to me is a catalyst a catalyst around violence, yeah. you know, and if we can help to let the air out just a little bit, you know, because it affects all of us, just mm-hmm. all of us. And if we can let the air out a little bit, you know, I, I definitely think we'll see an impact. That makes me think I know someone, I won't say how I know them because I'm trying to protect the privacy, but okay. you know, I, I am white and yeah. you know, I, I realize that I carry some privilege because I'm a white male and, you know, various other identity things in, in my yeah. background, but you know, this person is, is black. And mm-hmm. I, I've noticed in my interactions with this person that he, he seems to struggle with a lot of trauma. And he even told me one day uh, that, you know, his experience in life is different than mine yeah. because he has lost, I think he said something like 52, people to, I don't know if they were all from violence, but a lot of them were from violent acts here in the city. And that's just in the last few years. And he really struggles with how to process that. And that's why I appreciate that you're doing the the, the work that you're doing, because it's like, you know, I I'm kind of an outside observer in that. And, you know, I don't know necessarily how to help him other than him to kind of listen and be available sometimes, but you know, it's exciting to me to see these opportunities like for helping treat trauma in the city that there's more focus being placed on those. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, Baltimore is an interesting, beautiful place. And one of the things that I've learned or experienced in the short time that I've been here is that everybody knows everybody or everybody's connected to everybody. Baltimore. Baltimore. You know, I'm like, that's good. And sometimes it's rough. But but from a trauma perspective, you know, you know, this we have two safe street sites and, and, you know, the guys are on the street or the women are on the street and they're they're mitigating violence. But often someone in their family is is killed because everybody's connected to everybody. And so there's there's that trauma on top of that trauma. And so I think you you saying 
that you're aware, one of your whiteness, which is, you know, I think everyone should be aware, which is I, I, I give you, you know, some props for being aware and trying to assess yourself around what you can do to understand, mm-hmm. you know, that that is that is critical. You know, there, there we don't have time for blame anymore. Yeah. You know, we don't have time for blame. And, and you know, what we do have time for is strategy and to understand how trauma affects us all, you know, and how violence impacts us all. Yeah. So good for you and your statement. Oh, thank you. Um, so kind of like on a, a positive note, how do, do you recall any stories of work that you've done directly with clients that you you that make you grateful for the work that you're doing? Like what, what makes you enjoy it? I have, I mean, I, I, first I love the team that I have working with at Center for Hope, you know, um, you know, we at Center for Hope, we're, we're, the leadership is taking and embracing one, you know, I think as a result of George Floyd, we're doing some real work around how that plays out in our, our policies and procedures, our ARA, Oh, you know, please forgive me. I'm horrible with acronyms, but we're doing a lot of work around, you know, where we are in terms of our racial inequity. Mm-hmm. Um, help me out. So, so, so that's kind of stuff is really exciting for me in this work. It's not something that um, I've experienced in a lot of nonprofits, but you know, the day to day, the work that I see the staff doing the guys on the street mitigating. I've, I've, I've seen people in the middle of guns, you know, I've seen people putting their life at risk every, you know, while they're doing this work, I've seen firsthand the, the stuff that they're offering Baltimore, they're offering their lives, you know? Um, And that to me is amazing. And they do it every day and they go out and they try to, mitigate violence. To me, that's like unbelievable and, you know, a blessing to be, to have, you know, I can share stories on top of stories, you know, where where folks in Woodbourne, you know, McCabe have come together when there there was a shooting in front of the Save Street site, you know, and how the community kind of rallied around folks. You know, Baltimore has a plethora of folks who are mitigating and trying to stay in the solution. Um, you know, you know, myself, I'm going to give myself a, a little plug, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to do this work, but as a result of George Floyd, I, I started a business um, and my business is called street pause. And I was going to ask I, you about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. It's, it's, um, it's going to be an opportunity for folks to get immediate service. Um, you know, they'll have an opportunity to to have someone dispatched a nonprofit directly to them for supports. I'm not going to tell you all of it, you know, because I, I don't want to share too much. But one of the things that I do believe in, I do believe in police reform. I, I believe that. Police officers have their role, but they're not fully trained to take on all of the stuff where they're they're dispatched and, you know, sent to. And I think we can do it a different way. And and, and Street Pause is an opportunity, one, to teach communities how to engage around resources that are available and to develop a strategy to do that. So there's a a research and and a training component that goes to it, but there's also a component that goes to it where someone can get immediate service. So I'm really excited about that. Um, You know, I do believe that people 
want to do something to help each other. You know, I've seen it in some of the most horrific situations. Someone makes a call. Someone someone offers some foods. People want a way to help. I believe in love. I think that if we give folks a strategy and opportunity to do something and help them understand where they can go to get it and give them something so that they can get it, communities will flourish and they will help each other. And so Street Paws is 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 a business that for me, when I saw the George Floyd, I mean, you know, I I believe in divinity and things come to us when when George Floyd happened, it hurt. And, And I've seen myself in everything as a conduit. And I was like, okay, I'm listening. And so this idea came to me. So I've been working diligently and hard to try and get Street Paws launched. I'm hoping to have it, you know, done um, soon. So, you know, I'm raising funds. I have a little bit of a GoFundMe and I've applied for lots of grants. Um, But it's something where I think cities across the country will be able to use. Yeah. And, And for communities to help themselves and learn techniques and have a tool to help themselves. So I'm excited. Yeah. And it sounds like you have, so, you know, when, again, I'm, I have my own kind of perspective being a white male and all that, but you know, when, when George Floyd was murdered, you know, Mm -hmm. of course I was saddened and then I was saddened for everybody else that was affected and just what, what that murder represented. And, you know, Mm -hmm. but hearing you talk about it, especially given your position, you know, working with, you know, directly with clients that mm-hmm. kind of face, I mean, not murdered every day, but uh, day. violence and trauma. Anyway, every you day. have a different perspective and, yeah. you know, hearing you talk about street pause, it, it sounds like you, you have a, a unique opportunity to help mm-hmm. kind of spread some, like build a model yeah. that can help other people across. I hope the so. Dante, you know, Tata before he was killed, you know, Tata, um, he, he reached out to me. He reached out to me to help a young man who was in trouble. This is when he, I was. He was a right. safe streets worker, right? Yeah, he worked for the city. He did safe streets from for, for many, many years. He was killed and he was very loved and very, very good and very passionate about what he did. I got that impression, right? Yeah. And, you know, and so he reached out to me and he, he you know, I. I'm, I'm a woman, as you, you know, I, I, my gender, I, I go by, I'm non-binary, but I go by, and I go by they, but uh, as a woman, um, I, I come about, I, I use, I have, I'm a bit of a motherer, you know? And so, you know, Tato knew that I had a particular kind of way. And so he reached out with me to help this young man. And, and in doing so, the situation was pretty explosive, but I got to know this young man. And this, I asked this young man, what would you need? You know, what would you, what would, and I asked a lot, of, and he asked a lot of young men. And, and I, he said, um, you know, I'm going to use my name now, but they called me Mama Lisa. A lot of the, you know, folks on the street call me Mama Lisa because I'm mother, so many. But, <laughs> but, but he said, well, free, you know, I would need to be able to get the things that I need quickly. You know, you know, when I needed food, when I needed such and such and such, because I didn't know where to get it. I didn't have a way to, to, to get it. I did what I needed to do, you know? And, and so we, we, I did some focus groups with some young men. They said, we would want this, this, and this. And it would have, it would have caused me not to have to do what I needed to do. And so from there, you know, like I said, um, as a result of just listening, 
you know, the idea for Street Pause in a way to help those young folks or to help people get the things that they need from the people who are trained, from the people who can provide the resource, from the people who can bring the food to have access to that in a way that is simple is what would help based on what I'm told. And so um, a lot of, and and to track some things, because, you know, I I believe in checks and balance. I believe that we as nonprofits should have checks and balance. We should know if, if we're doing the service well. So data tells us a lot. So a large component of what I'm developing will be a way to track who's doing great work, who's doing what they're saying. So I'm excited about it. You know, I'm, you know, I wish I could share more. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm very, I'd be giddy about it. That sounds like a lot to be excited about. (laughs) It is, you know, to, to work for Center for Hope, which is, which is so supportive and so, um, such amazing team. I have to say, you know, to, to have that, and then also to have an opportunity to do it just because I have an idea. I I mean, I'm very blessed. You know, I'm very blessed. I, I do believe we're all here for each other. So I'm pretty happy about it. I'm glad to hear that. That that just warms my heart to hear you say that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So this work is amazing because, like I said, I de- trauma and violence that impacts us all. Yes. You know, all of us, and and sometimes people don't want to look at it. You know, sometimes people, you know, are not able to look at it. Sometimes people are not able to do, you know, to to do the direct. But everybody can do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a segment I like to do with everyone I talk to called giving your flowers. Mm-hmm. So it's where I ask, uh, you know, who are the people in your life that have made a difference kind of mm-hmm. helped inform who you are. And you already mentioned your grandmother, yeah. but or is there anyone else that you've crossed paths with that have informed who you are today? You know, Detra, there's a woman who used to work for the city. She, she ran all of the safe. She was the director of the safe streets components here in Baltimore. You know, she was a huge influence because she was someone who really came from a place of love. I don't think we all know, have all the answers. And when you're working with violence, the changes and things are so intense. Sometimes we're thinking on our feet, but there was, she came from love and that was a real influence for me because I connected with her from a, from this place of her loving the work. You know, John Brothers, he works, John Brothers, he's, he um, works for T. Rowe Price. John Brothers, when I was in New York, and, and everybody doesn't know this story, but John was my first intern. Um, and wow. I, I watched John then with his love and concern and care for individuals. Um, and John now is running, you know, a lot here with T. Rowe Price. And he's an amazing person, you know, so that the, the, I was his boss. Now he's doing his thing. But his his way in building partnership, real partnership, evaluating things is a way that sometimes we all need to see. So those folks and, and you know, the, the folks I mean, so that that is that, those are some serious mentors and the folks who are doing the, the work on the streets every day. Yeah. The folks that are on the streets, you know, I can't give safe streets enough credit. You know, I can't even begin to tell you from the inside 
what they're offering the city. You yeah. know, lots of times in the press, sometimes, you know, we get there's a lot of negativity if someone messes up, you know, but, but the good stuff that is happening, I know firsthand is not being talked about enough because the, so, so those are the, fo- those are the folks that help me like say, thank you for, for just the opportunity to, to be able to be, be used in a way that I can, I can use my energy for something positive. Yeah. People complain about Baltimore having, you know, over 300 murders a year and that sort of thing. And, you know, when we're talking about trauma that, you know, there's all sorts of people that are affected because they're losing loved ones. And, but it's, I'm glad to hear that you're helping support these safe streets workers that are going out and, and trying to, you know, assist Mm -hmm. with some of those people that are hurting. One of, one of the other things I'm really, you know, Senator Hope Adam, you know, there's this campaign called the Red Desk campaign, you know. um, I've seen photos of that. Yeah. yeah, Which which brings light to all of the young people that have lost lives to guns, you know, gunshots or violent um, situations here in Baltimore. So so that campaign, I'm, I'm hoping that we can we can we can use it in a way to bring some positive change. You know, one of the things that was done this year was that, you know, wherever there was a Safe Streets event, we took the red desk across the city and young people were able to create a butterfly to make something that, um, you know, to, in memory of someone who was lost. They sit at the desk, they make this butterfly, you know, which kind of signifies the metamorphosing of of, you know, the negative into something beautiful, you know, it's things like that, that we need to do. So, you know, I'm hoping that we can, we can share that more this year. Um, I I wanted to, I wanted to speak about that because I think it's, it's events like that, that bring light on a situation that provide an opportunity to understand, but to, to mitigate and do something positive. Yeah. You know, so yeah, we, 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 the darkness and the, the tragedy around every life that is lost, you know, is hard and harmful and hurts, you know, which, which unfortunately for me, you know, it's, 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 it's way everyone is too much, but can, can be used as a way for us to dig deep and do this work and, and provide solutions, you know? Yeah. Um, Also, I have a question for you as far as giving your flowers. And I know this can cover a lot of ground because there's a lot of people doing good work, as you've mentioned here in Baltimore. Is there a particular individual or organization that you admire that's doing good work that you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, You know, I'm I'm, going to give a shout out. Let's see. Like I said, Safe Streets is mine. I always give a shout out. But, you know, the the all the hospitals that are doing hospital responder work, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm going to give a, a shout out to Sinai, to Grace, to Hopkins, to MedStar, because, you know, not only have they dealing with COVID because, you know, we, we've been through a harsh COVID experience, but, but they're still mitigating gun violence and community violence in the hospitals, you know, so, you know, they, they're, they're the, they're folks, safe streets. We, we know what they're doing, but there's responders in hospitals who are mitigating and trying to prevent retaliation and trying to provide services. I'm giving a shout out, you know, to, to, to those folks, um, because it's, it's, it's double, you know, we're, we're, they're, they're, they're 
they're risking their lives. And yeah. so I'm giving a shout out to them. And, you know, any 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 program in Baltimore that's in the solution, you know, there there are young men that are there's a young man, Alex. He's got a boxing league on late league where he's mitigating violence. Black Box Radio, they're 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 doing things. Ceasefire is doing things. There there's amazing, you know, there's amazing organizations here in Baltimore. We just need to uplift them as, as best we can. Thanks again to Freedom Jones for making time to talk with me. I, I sincerely appreciate it. If you'd like to follow Free online, you can check them out on Facebook and Instagram at Black Woman Welder. That's where they share personal updates and more about their art practice. And <laughs> I have a spoiler alert. Free has an excellent car singing voice. And you'll see what I mean if you go and check them out on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to learn more about the Center for Hope at LifeBridge, go to your favorite search engine and type in Center for Hope Baltimore, and you should find their website that way. I'll also put a link in the description below. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing more news coverage about the center uh, over the next several months, especially after the new facility opens in the spring. You can also check out Street Paws, which is the anti-violence resource organization that Free mentioned. They're at streetpaws.com. As for me, I'll be back on the 15th to share another one of Baltimore's thousands of helpers with you. For now, I appreciate you being out there, and I just want to say thank you for being kind today. Take care.